Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. Okay, we are on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Back in the beginning of May, we had Oyi Chu, the chief commercial officer of what was back then called iStocks on the show. We always want to catch up with great companies, particularly when they are innovating so rapidly. So we went back to the well and asked one of the co-founders of what has since been renamed Adex to join us. And we are happy to have Darius Liu, the chief operating officer on the show today. Darius, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. You're very welcome. You look great. You sound great. The background is awesome. It's super great to have you here. Let's get a bit of your background for some context, and then we can jump into the main part of the show. All right. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm Darius. I'm the co-founder and COO of edX. And before I joined, or I started edX rather, uh, I was from uh, GIC, the Singapore Sovereign Fund, uh, doing asset allocation, portfolio construction, optimization for a good part of six years. And uh, prior to that, in that my previous life, I was from the establishment. So I was from the Singapore government and doing my rounds uh, in various ministries, including the Ministry of Finance, looking at reserves matters of the entire uh, Singapore establishment. I, I bring to the table asset management as well as uh, you know government uh, administration regulation kind of experience. So that's that's me. I don't even know where to start. I think I told you this before, but GIC was one of our biggest clients across. You know, when I was at Goldman Sachs, when I was at Deutsche Bank, all of it actually in the portfolio trading business. So, yeah, and an incredible entity, by the way, with some of the most high caliber people I encountered in the entire investment landscape. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. They were really, truly amazing. Anyway, I want to start with something easy, the name change. What, uh, what prompted the name change? You know, we've been in uh, sort of at that point of the name change, we've been operating as an entity for maybe two plus years and as a regulated entity for just over a year. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten, of course, industry feedback as we go out and talk to people, right? And and some of the feedback that we got is like, oh, um, are you a crypto exchange? Oh, are you uh, some sort of like a, a token trading platform? Right. Which we are, but they sort of have a sort of different meaning of tokens in their heads, right? <laughs> right. Uh, are you a technology provider? Are you somehow linked to Apple, right? Because it's I something I. or other. <laughs> yeah. And and then we went, went back and scratched our heads on this. And we, we, we thought to ourselves, okay, you know what? Maybe the, the main thing that we bring to our users is not actually the fact that we are operating on a new technology. Yes, the technology is there because it adds value to people and therein I, you can see where this is going, right? right. But where, what actually matters to people is how we, we create value and we add value to people's lives generally through their portfolios, through their accessibility, through their, their, their ability to invest in private markets. Uh, not so much the technology as the forefront, but the value that we create. And so we thought to ourselves, okay, we're going to launch a mobile app and we want to bring people's focus back to what we actually stand for and not the means by which we actually deliver this right. value. So we, we decided on edX and we put that coinciding with our mobile app launch and it was really well received. And, you know, you should check out a mobile app if you haven't already done so. Uh, people are listening into this podcast. I would say objectively, it's, it's one of the prettiest and, and most user-friendly apps that, that I have used. In my mind, right, great technology companies, the tech should be the magic in the background. You shouldn't even know what it is. And it doesn't matter if it sits on 
a Linux server or on an Apple platform or on the blockchain or on any distributed ledger technology platform, if it just works in a way that's frictionless and if the UI and UX are great, nobody really cares, do they? Actually, that's a good point, right? So for example, I we, we, we all are investors, right? And we trade on public markets yep. and, and all that. I, I don't go to New York Stock Exchange or SGX and ask them, hey, um, what technology are you using? What's your backend? What yeah, what's your backend? What, what programming language uh, uh, is your settlement system on? Uh, that's <laughs> kind of not what people do because it all works, right? And, and you, you, you get the investments and it settles and you get your see your money and you see your P&L and, and, and it just kind of works. Similarly, we've reached the stage in our development where People just have made money on our platform. It, it, they've gotten uh, the end-to-end life cycle uh, of their investments. They see it through from the bond. Let's like say, for example, a bond, right? We have done a bond, bond uh, a distribution. We've done all the coupon payments. We've done the bond maturity. It just kind of works. Right. So people don't talk about the technology at, anymore, actually. That level of trust has been built. Yeah, I was legitimately laughing out loud when you said, I don't ask the New York Stock Exchange what their back-end system is. Because I could just imagine doing it like, tell me again how you connect to the DTCC kind of thing. And it'd just be like, <laughs> can I talk to somebody serious, please? Because it's the value add that really matters, right? It, 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 is, it is indeed. And, and it, that's really our DNA, right? We really want to add value. So we, we do have, you know, put in place over time and we've refined that process for actually even, you know, building out our shelf of products. And that's something that maybe we could talk about in a little bit. But really that uh, focus on the quality of the products that allow people to sort of build their, their wealth and create and build a better portfolio over the long term. I think that's really, uh, really our singular focus. But I like the way you described actually the renaming of the, of the business itself. I think it really matters in a way, right? Because if the name creates a little bit of, I don't want to say confusion, but if it's a distraction from what the product is, it's, it's not, it's not uh, optimal, right? It's suboptimal. But AdX, yeah. I like to say it, it's in the name. We're adding value. Like that's it. It's really straightforward, right? It is, and you don't really have to know what the underlying technology is. You just have to reap the benefits and be happy. Yeah, nobody cares. And you can see I do the same thing for my business. This is called the Asia Tech Podcast. Nobody has to ask what it's about. <laughs> yes. Right? Asia and tech. All right. You know, exactly. Please explain to me what it is. No, I'm kidding. And it's a podcast. Some people do ask. Anyway, so what else is new? You know, you, you spoke to, to Oyi uh, some time ago, and, mm -hmm. and back in the day, we were just in a way starting out, right? Uh, yep. we, we issued a bond, we issued a, a couple of funds. and But Oyi would have told this podcast that our vision really is to be a truly multi-asset uh, kind of a platform, yeah. right? Multi-asset in the form of, uh, in, in the realm of private markets, uh, so that, you know, I like to use this this analogy of being like the, the Amazon or the Alibaba of uh, private markets, right? Uh, you, like you think about Amazon or Alibaba, you you, you go into the, the, the site, you see all these wares on sale, and depend regardless of what you want to buy, you'll be able to find something that you like and you, you F off, you go and happy customer, right? So similarly, uh, investors come in all shapes and sizes and they all have different, you know, risk appetites and return expectations and uh, investment quantum the kind of limitations and so on. But our vision is regardless of whatever these things are, you come to edX, you'll be able to find something on our shelf that you like and you'll be able to add to your portfolio to add value to, to your portfolio over the long term, right? So that is really uh, our vision. So we have really sort of executed on that. And if you take a look at our uh, shelf today, uh, you would see 
something along the lines of 25, 26. You know, sometimes I lose count because we're sort of pushing out products, you know, uh, uh, once a week, uh, uh, once, once every two weeks, twice bi-weekly, that sort of thing. And it's really across bonds, uh, funds, and funds of all different shapes and sizes, right? You have the close end, open end, PE, VC, uh, real estate, quant. You have the open-ended funds that we've pushed out with Partners Group. We're very, very happy to partner with Partners Group, no pun intended, <laughs> and, and more to come, right? And, and so, so that's the funds universe, and it's such a rich universe in and of itself, but there's more, right? So there's, there's, there's equity exposure, and XM Studios was, was a really blowout right, for us. So it's, uh, it, it's really, uh, it was oversubscribed. We, we brought on a lot of their, their fan base. And if you, uh, for, the, for listeners who don't know what XM Studios is, it's this high-end collectibles uh, maker, right? Uh, the, the, it's a company that creates high-end collectibles of statues of you know, DC superheroes, Batman, uh, Sanrio, uh, Marvel, that sort of thing, right? So basically rich man's toys, right? These things can sell for like a $5,000 each. And so, you know, they, uh, that's we, we give now people ability to buy into the com- companies like that, right? equity exposure. And of course, we just launched our very first structured product. Now, this you, you've heard it here first, guys. We, we, we haven't put out the PR in this, but uh, on Asia Tech Podcast, you heard it here first. So literally, it's really a, a, a full shelf, different asset classes. And, you know, we're, we're just executing on that. And we're very excited to, to see what's next. Can you talk about the structured product at all in more detail? So for the first uh, structured product, it, it's really a, a simple one. It's basically a tracker uh, based with an underlying of uh, Citibank. Um, but we're, of course, structured products is such a rich universe and there's Absolutely. so many the permutations that we can. Uh, and we're building out all these kinds of different features of structured products over time. So you'll be able to see more and more uh, interesting product innovations coming out. Uh, in in the next uh, months and years. I want to ask about the business building aspect of this whole enterprise. And I think you'll see where I'm going in a second. And this is true for me too, right? So I'm using GIC and the government because those are the places where you worked, but it's just as likely for me to use, you know, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, which is where I worked as well. Is there more excitement for you? Because in a startup, you're definitely resource constrained, right? Is there more excitement for you, you think, when you have a vision you build the infrastructure, you roll out the technology, and then you actually start to see products from front to back work. Do you know what I mean? Because the vision is one thing, right? But literally getting someone to say yes, to invest some money, to get that money, to process it, to have actually settle it, and then to have the product be theirs, is it more exciting because there was nothing when you... St- you, know what, you know what I mean? That yeah. feeling, yeah? Yeah, correct. I mean... As, as a co-founder of a company, you sort of, you, we, when we started out, it's really sort of like a few guys and laptops. And I remember screwing my own IKEA tables uh, you know, <laughs> to, to create you know, more space. I mean, that is really how, how it started. And fast forward to where we are today as a, you know, a regulated uh, FI, first in the world and, and then forging really new ground almost every day. I think there's a lot of satisfaction and, and really it's about execution, right? So there's, there's so many unknowns when we started. Basically, when we we're the first in, uh, in, in this market, in, in this space, we have to work with regulators, we have to work with other B2B players, we have to work with customers, that, uh, we have to work with, you know, even tax authorities and, and so on, right? So so there's so many unknowns and you're really creating really something out of nothing, right? Forging new ground. And that really gives a lot of satisfaction when you actually figure something out that that works and right. you and you actually see it work, like the machine kind of starts up and, and, and the wheels start turning. Oh my gosh, that, that that's really satisfying. But it's a pretty incredible feeling, right? And I'll go back to me. Like I take for granted the fact that when I was at Goldman, that they were licensed everywhere that we operated. I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, I could figure it out, but it's kind of a cool process where you're like, 
wait a second, now we're a licensed thing. And the, yeah, and the same people that licensed, you know, City, City Group, where you're doing the structured product, have probably licensed you. It's just kind of cool, no? It is. And it, it also helped that, uh, you know, being from the establishment, you still know how the establishment thinks right. about these things, right? right. Uh, and it's all about, you know, how to build competitiveness on a, on a, on a uh, national level. And really, the next leap of competitiveness, and I'm convinced of this, is will have to be driven by tech and, and innovation in the regulatory space and innovation in the technology space. That is one way, the one key way that the Singapore financial system can compete and become globally competitive. So we are at the forefront of that. We tap into that line of thinking, which we know exists in the government. And, you know, here we are today. Can you give me a little bit of insight into this? And again, I'll give you some background. My first time in Singapore was in 1990. And my first image of Singapore was of a place where I could go shop. I was living in Tokyo at the time. But also there was a company, and I may get the name wrong, but help me out here, called Creative Technologies that were making yes. sound cards and sound blaster, audio equipment, sound right? Yep. And in my mind, like before I even arrived there, Singapore was a place where electronics was getting manufactured. But if you go back even further, like into the 40s and the 50s, you know, Singapore was like a fishing village, right? It's not a gigantic island. And I, I'd love some insight. And then it became sort of like, literally like a regional and global financial center. And this all seemed to happen seamlessly. And I agree with you that I think that the next step is to become a tech center and a startup center. And that's happened. It started happening 10 years ago. But I'm curious, for somebody who was inside the government, like you said, in the establishment, what type of time frame are these decisions getting made? And what is that process like? If you have any insight, I'd love to know. Is that fair? It is fair. It is fair. And part of it is sort of reflected numerically in the GIC investment horizon, right? Which yeah. is 20 years, right. right? And this is just investments. And in the government, and this has been said uh, here and there, we're talking about intergenerational kind of equity, yeah. right? And this intergenerational equity transfer in the in the form of, you know, uh, stability, in the form of uh, infrastructure, in the form of national prosperity, and so on and so forth. So uh, that sort of gives a glimpse into the mindset of how the sort of establishment has set itself up to think. And and it sort of ingrained itself into every part of how the government works, right? Including the the, the entities that manage the reserves, like like the Master GIC and so forth. Right. So you don't see very often an entity coming out to say, "My investment horizon is twenty years," right? And yeah. How, how do you even plan for that, right? But that's what we did, right? And that was part of my my job back back in, back in the shop. Um. So so it's really about that. And that 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 long term investment, we're reaping dividends now, but we are also laying the foundations for the next generation, and and you know. Preparing the, the, the next, like my kids, right? To uh, what, what, what is that? That their Singapore that they are going to inherit, right? And we think that the the stuff that, for example, edX is doing, like building out this all this uh, infrastructure, this laying the foundations for a healthy digital economy based on you know uh, investor protection and and uh, proper uh, regulations and that sort of thing, not cowboy land doing it properly so right. that it lasts and is sustainable. I love this idea of intergenerational equity. Maybe that'll be the title of this. Because I do think, and again, in my mind, when I go back and look at the progression, it almost seems like Singapore is so great at startups because it itself is a startup with a great idea and insanely great execution, right? Because that's, again, the idea is great, but the execution has been intergenerationally amazing. And I think if what you're building at Addicts is meant to continue on that process of adding intergenerational equity that's an amazing value add. 
Yeah, we see ourselves as having a lot of developmental value for the long term of uh, Singapore as a financial center, right? Absolutely. Because in, in the future, we see everything being digitized. Uh, yeah. I don't think anybody will, will disagree that this digitization wave is is something that's coming, whether or not you agree with it or not, right? right? right. And it's going to touch every part of our lives, including capital markets. Absolutely. And and how people uh, interact with capital markets, either being an investor or an issuer or service provider, it's all going to change, right? And so, so how you see see the wave coming how do we want to position ourselves for it and and we stand ready to work with everybody in singapore and indeed the world to to lay a, a solid foundation for something that's healthy as this as this new nascent digitized securities ecosystem grows in right. the future and if you think that the world is on a path of digitalization in the capital markets across asset classes and if you believe that there's a secular change also globally not just regionally for sustainability, then the combination of those things together should be pretty amazing. Let's talk about Semcorp's sustainability-linked bond, how ADEX participated in it, and the significance of this, not just for the bond market, but for the future of digital bonds and other security offerings in capital markets. Can you do that for me? Yeah, thank you. The Semcorp bond, the sustainability link bond is really a seminal sort of milestone in, in edX. I see it that way, right? Yeah. Because it sort of has all the aspects of this idea of that we are laying a foundation for the future. Right. So it's digital. We will partner with a venerable institution uh, here being UOB to, to do that, that issuance and that, this, that distribution. Uh, and also uh, Semcorp uh, with that forward-looking vision of you know, lowering their carbon emissions by, I think it was 25%, right? That was what was built into the bond before it, it, it triggers uh, an uptick in, in the yield. So we're very excited about that. And at this hopefully will be the first of many sustainability or ESG-linked uh, products that we build on, bring onto our shelf. Uh, and the power of digital assets is actually that we are allowing different sized and different types of issuers to express their capital market activities outside of the current constraint system, right? The, the example I'd like to give is this. Right now, if let's say you're a mid-sized company and you want to issue a sustainability linked bond like Semcorp, and you go to one of the usual bond lead managers and say, I want to do a 50 million bond. They're not going to roll out a bit for 50 million. No. They're not going to roll out a bit for 150 million, right? No. Semcorp was 675 million, of which, of course, uh, edX took 50 million of that. But with digital securities, we are actually able to, if the, the issuer so desires, to issue a 50 million bond, sustainability linked or not, on our platform today. And if you look at some of the bond or fixed income products that we have today, look at the CGSCIMB commercial paper. It's three months auto rollover. Uh, that could be sustainability linked potentially as well, right? The next one that comes along or the, the following one, it could have some kind of an ESG angle or sustainability angle uh, built into that. And the size of that was a program of, what was it, 150 million, but every uh, byte could be 30 million, 50 million, 20 million, 40 million. And that is the future. The future, uh, I like to say, small is beautiful, right? Because right now, a small number of big issuers dominate the market, and it's a, a function of how the uh, infrastructure is set up. But with digitalization, digital securities, and platforms like edX, you're going to be able to capture that long tail of smaller issuers who also want to participate in, let's say, sustainability uh, initiatives, who also want to express 
their activities on the capital markets with a sustainability angle in mind. And we allow that to happen. So this is really an exciting angle for us. Well, there's an accessibility issue here, right? And that is for small to be beautiful, it first has to be possible. Yes. Right. So, so we make it possible and then people, more people will be able to see the beauty of it and participate in it. Absolutely. But I wanted to make that point, right? Because you said, and I've been through this with some big firms, and this is the other thing that I want to cover with you as well. You, you go to a big firm with a $50 million or $100 million deal, and they'll just yawn. Because frankly, their fee structure and their back-end structure is not set up to be able to handle that in a way that's efficient. Once you start digitalizing everything, I can't say that word, digitizing everything. <laughs> Feel free to laugh. Elgin, you can laugh as well. But once everything becomes digital, it becomes also more efficient, right? That's right. From a, not just from a distribution standpoint, but from a product creation and a product innovation standpoint. Right? Because if you're digital first, then the whole basis of your platform is this idea that we can be as efficient and as creative as possible from the get-go. You're not trying to jam stuff into a system that has no flexibility. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay, so think about it this way, right? That for, let's say, fund or, or private debt issuers, they, they generally go out to find two or three or, let's say, five big boys and take up the whole slug. And there's yep. a reason for that, right? Because they, they can't handle a thousand small people, right? right? right. And, and it's because of the infrastructure and the back-end systems. And what, but in the digitized format, the system and the platform handles all of that for you. So all the tracking of ownership, ownership transfers, uh, asset servicing, uh, coupon payments, all that is actually on the platform through the smart contracts, through uh, our workflows. It really opens up, you know, this entire vista of possibilities in terms of, you know, tapping pools of liquidity and pools of demand that couldn't otherwise be accessed because the infrastructure underlying the market today is just so inefficient. Yeah. We glossed over this really quickly. You said, you mentioned SEMCorp, right? And UOB. How long have these companies been around? Just average. I don't know. Is it 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, 30 years? It's been around for a while, yeah? Been around as long as Singapore has, if not longer. Right. So 50, yeah. 60 years, these companies yes. have been around. And you made it just sound like a little bit like, uh, what's the right word? Kind of blasé. So we participated in this with UOB and with SEMCorp. I really want to understand the sales process here where Darius from a company that's essentially brand new from an operating standpoint, how do you walk into the office of UOB with enough credibility and with SEMCorp and not have them go, we're not dealing with you? Do you know what I mean? Like, how, What is that sales cycle like? I think it really helps to have who we have on, on the team and who you have on our board and our cap table to be able to sort of walk, walk into the door with confidence and, you know, having at least some kind of a network and a familiarity already present, right? So, you know, Oyi knows people, I know people, our board members know people, and, and that, that sort of forms the starting point of a lot of these interactions. Now, not all big and venerable institutions uh, buy into the future of that future is digital. For sure. But SEMCorp and UOB have and, and, and other people that we're talking to, of course. Uh, and then, of, then, you know, how they, they ask then the question, all right, what does this mean for us? And they realize that they have to, you know, get onto the bandwagon and figure out how that idea of digitization can be brought onto their, their business. So then they look around in the market and basically we're the biggest game in town. We may be new, but hey, digital securities is new. 
right? <laughs> and and we were the first, and we are basically the most reputable by far and the biggest game in town. And we have the licenses from the MAS to, to make this work. And we have a track record of making stuff work, right? All that we have uh, said that we will do in the past from right from the start until today, we have actually delivered. We may not have made these pronouncements publicly, but we have done so, you know, with internally the shareholders and stuff. Everything that we have said we have do, done, we have delivered. Um, so there is a certain amount of credibility in that. And indeed, we have delivered now, SEMCORP, with UOB sustainability link bond and more to come. So we talked earlier about that feeling that the team has when they have a vision, they execute that vision and everything works seamlessly, right? Like it just comes out the other end and it's fine. And like, I know the fear that's involved in, I'll just talk about rolling out a new trading system. It's just so non-trivial and so complex and so many moving pieces that once you develop it, build it, roll it out, and then use it to actually do a real trade in the market, you're like, wow, that worked. But also there's a little bit of fear there, right? Like what if it doesn't work? Yeah, of course, then we test it to death before of course, we roll it of course. out as, as we do. But we have the, I would say, the privilege of being uh, able to build something from ground up, yeah. right? So, so that itself is scary, but it also frees us from a lot of legacy kind of issues. In, in a big bank, in, in for that matter, in, in the government, in GIC or uh, institutions like this, there are systems that we integrate to, and there are systems that are doing A, B, C, and then you need to do D, and you have to integrate with A, B, and C. And of course, you can see how this gets complex really quickly. But we, we built everything with a long-term vision in mind that the system should be easily maintainable. It should be easily upgradable. It's modular. It's built on microservices, that sort of thing, right? So it is easier. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier than building on legacy system to be able to roll out very, very value additive services in a very, very quick amount of time. You're preaching to the converted when you're talking about the difference between easy and easier. I use this terminology all the time. It's relatively easy, right? Yeah, because... it's relatively easy, but... If you build the right system from the beginning, the future is always easier. If you hard code a bunch of stuff and just everything sits in a table that's not adjustable, it's a nightmare later. Yeah, correct. I also don't want to trivialize that, like the amount, the sheer amount of complexity and hard work oh and the, the a number of stars that have to align. I mean, the idea of digital security is we didn't come up with this, right? right. Tokenization as a term was there before edX, before iStocks was. Yep. But no one has been able to be able to execute on this because right. Everybody who has come before us and indeed everybody who has since come after us have quickly realized that there's so many stars have to align in order for all this stuff to work that, you know, you just have to have all the right ingredients. We miss one and the whole thing just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. We can have all these conversations about how to do this and how to do that. It reminds me of an old Steve Martin joke, actually. He had a foolproof process for how to make a million dollars in the stock market. Step one, get a million dollars. But it's the same thing. This is people's idea of how simple they think stuff is, right? Building an, a digital asset business, is, it sounds easy to conceive, but building it is so hard, yeah. right? But, but we project it as super easy to use. Oh, right? for and sure. Therefore, there, therein lies, and the, the, the easier it is for you to use, the more work we have to do back end to make sure that it's easy. Yeah. So we really put in that groundwork. We laid a solid foundation. And now the, the fact that we are able to push out, you know, one, one product every two weeks, one product a week. That's testament to that solid foundation that we've really invested a lot of time, energy, and, 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 and indeed uh, money in uh, to be able to, to reach where we are today. Yeah, I mean, there's no way in the world in which we live that something that's easy to use cannot be almost impossibly complex on the back end. It has to be that way. Otherwise, it would be hard to use. I want to yeah. talk about 
I want to talk more a little bit about this sustainability bond, sustainability-linked bond for SEMCORP. Are there Ethereum components to this so that if, and I'm just thinking smart contracts, right? So that if something happens, whatever needs to happen on the sustainability-linked bond is just automatically done? That's right. So as we all know, the, the bond ratchets up in, in the, the coupon uh, rate if something doesn't happen, right? So the target would be if they don't, hit, what was it, like a 25% deep reduction in, in their carbon emissions as a group, then if that condition is not met, the bond coupon rate ratchets up. And that is coded into the smart contract, right, which is essentially the bond that people buy into. So we know when the date happens, uh, that input gets triggered. And if it's A, then the smart contract will execute in a certain way. If it's B, the smart contract execute in a different way. So that is, is all hard-coded in. And being a smart contract, it's immutable and, and all the good stuff. So this is really a very simple use case, right? So if you think about more complex, if, then, if this, then that's built in uh, in various combinations and all that is coded into the smart contract, you start getting to see how how that complexity actually can be automated within, uh, you know, a, a, actually a smart digital asset. Yeah, I mean, you saw me looking off to the side and that was me thinking, okay, all the products that I know existed when I left the financial services market 10 years ago, if they were digitalized or digitized, right? How would the smart contracts be using them? It's almost endless, isn't it? Yep, correct. And the, the fact that all these things can be sort of codified into uh, uh, an intelligent uh, asset allows for more product innovation to take place, right? Because innovation uh, occurs when you have the tools for people to use to innovate. And here we allow more innovation to take place because we are able to, you know, have that infrastructure to accommodate more complex issuance types, right? More covenants, more trigger points, more ratchets, and this sort of thing, right? So I think the, the possibilities are endless. This is really a very simple use case as far as the feature is concerned. But look, uh, the possibilities are really endless, as you said. It seems like it. Do you look at fractionalization as well? You know what I mean? Like fractionalization of real estate, fractionalization of other assets? Well, the whole premise of, of digital assets is the, the power of fractionalization, right? Fractional ownership. The fact that we exist in the form of a digital token allows seamless fractional ownership and trading and recombination and so on and so forth, right? Where, let's say, for example, if you were to try to sell an LP stake in a private equity fund today, you'll be pulling your teeth before you know it, right? Yeah. Uh, it's that painful. But today we have private equity funds on our platform. They're trading on our platform and you can buy, sell in fractional units. And it, you j it almost works, works so well that you don't think about it, right? You don't think about the alternative today where you try to transfer an LP stake and you try to start pulling your teeth out. So that, that is really the power of one of the main value propositions, I would say, of the fact that you know it exists in, in, in the form of digital token. Oh my God, it was such an interesting topic. So I was a limited partner in something called Ardent Capital. And one of my very good friends who I worked with at Morgan Stanley and, and Deutsche Securities and then went on to found his own firm was very interested in becoming an LP as well. But there was no room. But I wanted him to have access to it through some of the things in which they were investing in building. So I said to him, okay, I'll sell you part of my LP thing, right? Just, I can see you smiling, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> even Elgin's laughing. It was such a nightmare. And we were like arguing and yelling and screaming at each other. These are good friends, right? Trying to figure out like, just how do I get you this ownership? And then dealing with all the other limited partners in a way that was so analog, emails, back, all this kind of stuff. So I'm smiling now when I think about the ability to just trade somebody's LP stake at a fund. 
Yeah. Please, more think, of that, right? Yeah. So if people look at our trading platform on edX and really take a step back and think about what the alternative is today, <laughs> then you really sort of let, and let that sink in for a little bit, right? And and then you, you start to realize that, oh, you, we've made it so easy that people just don't stop, don't think about it, right? Trading an LP stake today in one of the, the funds, let's say a VC fund that would otherwise have a million dollar minimum entry and a 10 year lockup. Right. You can buy $5,000 worth of this and it settles instantly on the platform and you don't even, it, it's it's almost like trading a share of Capital Land or, or Apple or something like that, right? People don't just don't think about it anymore. And that's the beauty. That's really the beauty. That's, that's democratization for you. Yeah, but also, so there's a whole bunch of other ideas out there for this in, in my mind. I, I want to talk about collateralizing money. Have you considered this as well? That's an interesting, I mean, the, the way we think about it is these assets would be assets, right? In the, in the same vein as, you know, traditional uh, stocks that are listed on New York Stock Exchange, SGX, or held in uh, some custodian somewhere in private bank or whatever, right? So we co collateralize, uh, we, these things would, of course, carry value right. and and, uh, and have a fair market value and so on. So they would be fair game for collateral, right? And then you can sort of borrow against it and lend against it. And, and that's really sort of the, the, the utopia of, of all these uh, assets, right? An asset is an asset is an asset. It, but what, an Apple share shouldn't be uh, different from a security token. Right. Shouldn't be different from central bank digital currency, whatever else it is, right? It's store value is an asset. Right. Yeah, so yeah. this is an idea that I did not come up with on my own, obviously. But somebody introduced this idea to me and I can't get it out of my head. If you collateralize money, right? So take an asset that's generating revenue and has value and you expect the value of that to either stay the same or increase over time. And if you tokenize that, let's just say you tokenize like shopping at a supermarket. And one of the benefits you get from that tokenization is you get a 15% discount on food prices. So you buy into that, you, you, you help tokenize it by buying into that tokenization. You collateralize that by saying that that thing has value. And it then allows you to have food for free over time because you're also an owner. But because it goes up in value, it also eliminates your fear of inflation because if the underlying asset goes up in value, the thing that's storing that value, which is the token, if it has a one delta at some point, even if an ARB opens up, at some point it should revert to the mean. And that value should match the, the value and the movement of the value of that underlying asset. And the more I think about this, the more interested I get. You're smiling at me. What do you think? I mean, that's, that's a, sort of a merger of the security token, the, the utility token kind of concepts, right? So yeah. uh, it's basically utility tokens structured as securities. And that utility can, of course, come in any shape or form that, that you could possibly imagine, right? And right. we actually have sort of echoes of that because the XM Studios issuance that I mentioned, people who bought into XM Studios at a primary issuance stage enjoy some kind of a discount on their next purchase at, at XM Studios. Right. That is basically, you know, a, a, a utility, right? But the fact that you, you own it or you have uh, executed an action on the security token allows you to have this benefit. Now, it's not on on chain it's not automated yet but the possibility is can be, yeah. be of course right uh, and and this this idea has already sort of been built into our psyche that by owning this thing it it costs you such and such benefits above and beyond the price appreciation of the asset that you hold right and i'm just thinking about <laughs> when i was in tokyo 
one of the real estate companies built a building, let's say it had 100 units in it, it was very luxurious, and for $100,000, right, or 10 million yen, I can't remember what the price was, you could buy the use of that room for like two months out of the year, and you could book it anytime you wanted, and you were the owner. So that was a kind of first try at fractionalization. But it wasn't digitized at all, right? There was no yeah, it sounds tokenization. Sounds like timeshare. Was it called timeshare or something? No, like yeah, but it wasn't a timeshare. It was a different thing, and that's why I'm having a hard time explaining it. And even if it was timeshare, it was meant to be this super luxurious thing. It was in the city itself, or slightly outside. But again, it was fractionalized, but you couldn't trade it so easily. Now you can do that in a way that's just seamless. Absolutely. And that should be really exciting, no? It is. It is. I mean. Fractionalization is basically, you know, securitization, right? You, yep. you, 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 you are able to, in some kind of a legal structure, put in an asset or part thereof into a legal structure, which then can be fractionalized. Now, uh, if you want to fractionalize uh, it down to a single room, to think a little bit about how to make that work. But if you want to fractionalize, let's say, a building, you can put it into a single property REIT. Uh, vehicle, or you can put it into an SPV, and then the SPV issues units on the back of that, and then you you start getting the economic benefits from the underlying on a commingled basis at at the token holder level. So it is not a specific room per se, but on a commingled level, you have a fractional benefit ownership of the underlying. So that is something that we're doing today. Uh, if you want to have a specific like non-fungible room, you want to you know, think a little bit harder about how to make that work in the structure, but I'm sure it's possible. I mean, it's definitely uh, possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible. How do you look at your relationship with regulators outside of Singapore? I think the fact that we are on good terms with the regulators in Singapore put us in good stead. We, we talk to, or we or our partners talk to uh, external regulators. This, of course, is testament to the standing of the MAS in Singapore sure. uh, globally as, as a very reputable and, and robust and, of course, innovative regulatory body. Um, so the fact that we are an MAS regulated entity allows us to have the, at least, you know, when we walk into the room, we at least are at a certain, you know, level of, of trust, right. uh, if, if, if I may. Yeah. Yeah. But does that give you access to the ability to create products that are, let's say, country specific, but that aren't in Singapore? I think there are some, you know, technicalities around how we can market to certain countries onshore. And of course, these things tend to be licensed activities. So we, of course, are very mindful of regulatory compliance. So we, we are working through some of these issues uh, as we speak. But our current business is actually a global one. So we, we have uh, users from almost 20 over countries that are actively using our platform uh, all over the world, except the US. So people listening into this podcast from uh, all over the world, you are able to add value to your portfolio on edX as well. And uh, of course, issuers, we can onboard issuers uh, from any country. We, we have China VC funds, we have European assets underlying certain funds that we, we have. Uh, so really, uh, you know, it, we're a really global play. The last thing I want to ask you is what does growth look like to you? If you look five years out, right? So you had this vision to start, which you did. You have all these products, you're launching and issuing new products at such a rapid pace. What does growth going forward look like? No, growth is really about being the top of mind when it comes to private market assets and investments in general, right? So when you, you think about you want to buy a grocery delivery, you automatically log into like your Amazon or your whatever, right? E-commerce. In, in the same way, people want to think about I want to park my money somewhere, I want to grow my money, I want to balance my portfolio. Instantly, it's edX, right? We, we're the center of that kind of mind space when it comes to private market uh, investments 
of all shapes and sizes, right? And success really is lots of happy customers building better portfolios, growing their wealth over the long term, not uh, having to resort to unregulated platforms. These Those will continue to exist, but they kind of exist because there's no regulated venue, so to speak, right, for, for alternatives outside of public markets right now that are really accessible in the same way that Alex is accessible. So by providing that outlet, by providing that platform, success to us really is everybody is able to then realize their the desire of you know diversity and find that portfolio into alternatives into private markets that that will be the dream come true. Yeah, I mean, look, you you definitely want to have people not operating in unregulated entities, and the way this works in almost all technologies, right, is that first there's this unregulated market that takes place. Everybody's happy to be there and and operate there, but then the smart people come in and they build these regulated entities that people can trust, not just locally or regionally, but globally. And when you build that, all the rest of it falls away, right? It's like when Apple rolled out iTunes and people got to fractionalize albums and pay 99 cents for a song. Everything else that was illegal swapping for music just disappeared because it wasn't necessary anymore and because people trusted it. And yep. that's the same type of thing. I mean, I don't want to say it's like iTunes, but you understand my point is that people want to go to a place that they can trust and that's easy to use and that gives them all the things that they want and also innovates. And that's what it sounds like this is to me. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, why don't we end with that? <laughs> it was really nice to have you, Darius Liu, the Chief Operating Officer of ADEX on the show today. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>